you would this morning turn with me to the 115th Psalm. Psalm 115. It is written, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He had done whatsoever he had pleased. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they uh, speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Nose have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them, so is every one that trusteth in them. O Israel, trust thou in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Ye that fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Here in Psalm 115, David begins by saying, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory. Any individual who understands the depth of their sin and our carnal nature would recognize that there's no glory due to us. There's nothing that we would do and could do that would deserve any glorification. Any glory that you and I will ever experience will come at the expense, but also the mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will never be something that you've earned on your own, but something that he grants to you. He says, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and also for thy truth's sake. So when the righteous say, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, give glory rather to your name. Here's what the heathen respond with. Where is now their God? When the righteous magnify God, when the righteous revel in the knowledge of God and rejoice in the truth of God's existence, here's what the wicked do. The wicked respond. The wicked hate God. They hate all things about God, and they hate those who follow God and who love the Lord. And so when you uh, begin to rejoice in the Lord and you do so in this world, you're going to find heathen that will say, where is now their God? I remember after 9-11, at that time, Billy Graham was still uh, very active um, I remember they brought him on television. I believe it was Larry King that did so. Uh, I remember watching it very clearly. And um, the question was asked, where was God when 9-11 occurred? Of course, my answer uh, was right here in Psalm 115.3. He's in the heavens. He's done whatsoever he hath pleased. Of course, Larry King and the other uh, television news personalities didn't care the first thing about where God was uh, just the day before 9-11. But, of course, they use that as an opportunity to criticize God and those who believe in God because some terrible tragedy happened here on the earth. I can't remember what uh, uh, Billy Graham gave as an answer. I just recall the question. Same thing after Katrina. Many times when tragedies occur in our world, that's the question that, that is asked. And generally it is asked by heathen who don't care about God, don't believe in God, uh, but in that moment, they want to take opportunity to blame uh, the very God that they deny. Well, here the heathen, they say, where is now their God? The Bible lets us know in Second Peter chapter 3 that uh, in the last days, perilous times shall come. Uh, 
he also, Peter lets us know that in those troublesome days that there should be scoffers walking after their own lust. And here's their question, where's the promise of his coming? They say, because the world continues from the creation till now as it always has. Peter says, but this they're willingly ignorant of, uh, that the world that's now standing out of the water once was destroyed with water, and this world that now is, uh, is kept in store until God comes to destroy it with fire. But anyway, here in Psalm 115, the heathen asks the question, where is now their God? And David responds, our God is in the heavens. He had done whatsoever he hath pleased. If God will bless us today, I'd like to look at three aspects of the nature of God. God's omnipotence, meaning God is all-powerful. Also, that God is omniscient, meaning he has all knowledge. And lastly, that God is omnipresent, meaning he's everywhere present. There's nowhere uh, that you can escape the presence of God. Now, when we look at these things, uh, the scriptures are clear about all three aspects. Now, the word omniscience you will not find in the Bible. Uh, it is a term that theologians have uh, used to describe the knowledge of God, that he is all knowledgeable. Uh, you will not find the term omnipresent in the Bible. However, you'll find the doctrine taught within the Bible, again, that God is always present uh, in all places. Um, the word omnipotent is found one time in the word of God in Revelation chapter 19, where it says, uh, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Uh, so that lets me know that that also is taught in the word of God, but that is taught all throughout the scripture. I find in Genesis chapter 17, where God comes to Abraham, uh, it's regarding Isaac coming into this world. And he says in uh, chapter 17, verse one, when Abram was 90 years old and nine, so 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, I am the almighty God, uh, walk before me and be thou perfect, be thou complete, be mature. He says that I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. It says Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying and continued on with the conversation. But notice what God says when Abraham is 99 years of age. The Lord appears to Abram and says unto him, I am the almighty God. The Almighty, that means the one who has all might, all power. Uh, he is sovereign. There is none that can stay his hand, as Nebuchadnezzar said, or say unto him, what doest thou? That word Almighty is found 57 times in the Bible, only a handful of times in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul uses it one time, right to the church at Corinth. All other uses in the New Testament are limited to the book of Revelation. But it is a word that we find throughout the Old Testament uh, somewhat frequently. In fact, as Ruth uh, comes back, excuse me, as Naomi comes back from Moab, and when they see her and they recognize her as Naomi, they came out to her and began to speak with her. And if you'll recall, she lets them know that she's not to be called Naomi anymore, which means pleasant, but Mara, meaning bitter, she says, for the Almighty hath dealt bitterly with me. She understood that God is Almighty. And she says, in my experience, the one who is sovereign, the one who has full control, uh, has worked in my life, but he's dealt bitterly with me. So don't call me uh, Naomi, pleasant anymore. You call me Mara, which means bitter, bitter. Of course, if you read the book of Ruth, you'll find that the Almighty does not end bitterly with uh, Naomi. Uh, the Almighty ends up dealing very graciously with Naomi through his daughter-in-law, uh, her daughter-in-law Ruth, and the man that she would marry, Boaz, who would redeem them and, of course, uh, lift them up to a place of high state. Anyway, back to Psalm 115, he says, Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. 
Uh, I think all of us here, I trust, believe in the sovereign power of God, that God can do all things within his nature. Now, the Bible does tell us there are certain things God cannot do. God cannot lie. God cannot change. God cannot deny himself. Why can he not do those things? Because they're contrary to his nature. God will never do anything that's contrary to God's nature. But everything within the nature of God, God has all power to do. I find in Matthew chapter 28, the Lord Jesus Christ, the 18th, chapter, 18th verse, as he's getting ready to leave this world, he says to the disciples, all power is given to me both in heaven and earth. Uh, so here the Lord Jesus uh, tells the disciples, all power, uh, not just some power, not most power, he says, all power is given me both in heaven and in earth. So he says, I'm not just here with earthly power and an emissary of God with power on earth. He says, I also have all power in heaven. So I have all power in heaven. I have all power on earth. He says, go ye therefore. And he, they were to teach all nations, baptizing them, continuing teaching them, and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. He says, and lo, I am with you, even to the end of the world. Amen. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ says that for a very specific reason. Because in Matthew chapter 10, the Lord Jesus had told these very same men, save Judas Iscariot, who's not there in Matthew 28, that they were only to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They had no authority to go outside of the nation of Israel to preach the gospel. They could only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, even uh, in one occasion, when the Greeks came to the Lord, uh, to uh, Philip, in John chapter 12, says, Sir, we would see Jesus. Uh, he was a little hesitant to bring Gentiles to the Lord. So he comes and tells Andrew, Andrew was not hesitant to bring Gentiles to the Lord. So Andrew brings those two Greeks to the Lord and they got to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. They had heard about his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. They wanted to see his triumphal entry. They wanted to see his glory. And instead he begins to talk about suffering. For a child of God to really understand the glory of Christ, first they must understand the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what those Greeks were told there that day. So in Matthew chapter 10, the disciples got the message that they were not to go but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, All power is given to me, both in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore in all the world. Uh, he says, You go wherever I send you. Now they didn't get that message so clearly because in Acts chapter uh, 10, when Cornelius sends three to the apostle Peter, uh, the apostle Peter is uh, told by God in a vision uh, that there would be three coming. Because uh, three times that sheet was let down from heaven and God told you, rise, kill, and eat. Three times, Peter says, not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered into my mouth. And God tells Peter, what God hath cleansed, call not thou common or unclean. Uh, Peter got the message finally and he went down to Caesarea and he preached the gospel to the Gentiles at Cornelius' house. And uh, they uh, had the Holy Ghost fall upon them and many were baptized that day. So Peter finally got the message that Jesus had all power to give him the authority to preach the gospel outside of Judea, to preach the gospel to those beyond uh, the Jewish nation. Anyway, in Psalm 135, we read these words about the Lord. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Praise ye the Lord, praise ye the name of the Lord, praise him, O ye servants of the Lord. Ye that stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of God, praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises unto his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself, and Israel for his peculiar treasure. He says, For I know that the Lord is great, and that our Lord is above all gods. And then he says in verse 6, Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven, and in earth, in the seas, and all deep places. I think that uh, covers it all, does it not? 
Again, what does he say? The Lord, whatever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven. He did it in earth. He did it in the seas and in all deep places. In other words, there's no place that you can go, uh, whether it be anywhere upon this earth or in the depths or even to the heights of heaven itself and not see that God has done exactly what God has pleased. There's no place in creation, whether it be heaven where God dwells, whether it be space uh, uh, where man is intrigued, whether it be on earth where we live, uh, there's no place that you could go that you will not find uh, the signature and the handiwork of God where God has done whatsoever He had pleased. He didn't have to ask the light in Genesis chapter 1 if it wanted to be created. He just said, let there be light, and there was light. And all of a sudden, there was light that shone across this earth. Uh, he said to the waters to be divided, and all of a sudden, dry land appeared. Uh, he didn't ask for it to happen. He just commanded, and it was done. Uh, when he spoke, and all of a sudden, trees came into his ex existence in full maturity. All of a sudden, they didn't uh, uh, say, well, we might grow, we might desire to. They did exactly what God commands. I've got two trees in the side yard of my home that I've been fighting with for several years now. Uh, one of them is about to get cut down in the next few days. Uh, the other one I'm going to give one more year, and if it doesn't cooperate with me, it's gone as well. Uh, I've spent all the time and energy I'm going to spend on those things. Uh, but, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ, I remember one occasion, comes to a fig tree, and there was no figs on the tree, and he cursed it. They went on their journey. They came back by, and that tree was dead from the roots all the way to the branches. Uh, there wasn't a bit of life left in that tree. Why? Because when God works, when God ordains something to be, it's going to come to pass. So again, it says, Whatsoever the Lord pleased, that did he in heaven. He did it in earth, in the seas, and also all deep places. David would say in Psalm 33, Beginning in verse 6, Psalm 33, he says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathered the waters of the sea together as a heap. He layeth up the depth in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. It says, For he spake, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. It says, The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught, meaning to nothing. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect, but the counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart, to all generations. And no wonder he would say in the next verse, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, and the people whom he had chosen for his own inheritance. So here he says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made. And notice how they were made. All the hosts of them by the breath... Of his mouth, God just simply breathed. God spoke when breath uh, passed through his mouth in the form of his voice. All things were made. Uh, God didn't have to create this world uh, with us, other substance. God just from his own power and being spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. He spake and it was done. Uh, when I want to do something, I can't just speak and it's done. I can't just command and it stands fast. Uh, there's labor that I have to do to accomplish the goals uh, which I might set forth in my life. That is not the way that God operates. God didn't make this world through the uh, process of evolution using millions of years to do so. He didn't need that. Uh, he just simply in six days uh, made the world. And the only reason he did it in six days was to set forth our week uh, so that you and I would know to labor in six days and rest on the seventh. Uh, that's why God did it over six days. He could have done it all with one expression of his mouth. 
With the utterance of one breath, everything could have been created in one moment. Uh, but he chose to do it over six literal 24-hour days. And I still strongly contend that they were six literal 24-hour days. And through that, God set forth the calendar, which we still use today, of day and night. Uh, and he also made clear uh, to uh, Noah after the flood uh, that day and night, seed time harvest, uh, uh, cold and heat, uh, summer and winter, would all continue until the Lord comes at the last day. So again, it says that by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathereth the waters of the sea together as a heap. It's going back and telling us what he did in Genesis when he made the dry land. He took the waters, gathered them as a heap, but then it knows what it says. He layeth up the debt in storehouses. You know, it's amazing to me that within this globe upon which we dwell, uh, there's enough storehouse of water that we've not depleted it. Now, I realize there's portions of this world that are in uh, famine and drought that don't have enough water. I realize that, but then there's other places in this world that have an abundance of it. And I also know that at any moment, God can rain down from the heavens, and all of a sudden, places that have been parched and dry, uh, without water for decades, can all of a sudden be restored. Uh, when, uh, Genesis, uh, when the flood occurred in Genesis, you'll find that not only did the flood happen from the rain coming from above, but the Bible lets us know that it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, but it also says that God broke up, broke up the fountains of the deep. So you had rushing water coming from the depths of the earth and also rain pouring down uh, from the heavens. And from that, there was a deluge, a flood that overwhelmed this entire earth. Uh, that in 40 days time, the mountains, even the highest peaks upon this uh, earth upon which we dwell, uh, were covered over with water and lasted that way for about a year's time until finally dry land appeared. So here again it says, He gathered the waters of the sea together as a heap. He layeth them up and uh, layeth up the debt in storehouses. Then it says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. The omnipotence of God ought to cause us to fear, to understand that He's the Almighty, to understand that He's all-powerful. It has a practical application. Uh, number one, it ought to cause me to fear Him, to understand that He has total control over my life. As David would say, that our breath is in His hand. Uh, the very breath that you breathe in and you let out, that's by the mercy of God. It's by God's grace and mercy that you've been able to continue to this day, as Paul would say in Acts chapter 26, I, having therefore obtained the help of God, I continue unto this day. In Him we live, move, and have our being. So it's by God's grace that you even exist. It's by His power uh, that you were made. It is by His power that you uh, uh, continue on to this present day. But not only that, not only should it give us uh, cause for fear to understand his great power, but as for me, it gives me great hope and confidence that he's omnipotent, that he has all power. I love that he says in Revelation chapter 19, verse 6, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. I'm thankful to know that the God who reigns has all power, uh, that he has all power over sin, all power over death, all power over death, uh, hell, all power over Satan, all power even over my carnal nature. He has uh, all power over the elements of this world. He has power over my body and we'll see that at the last day when it comes forth from the grave. There is nothing that's been made which all things outside of God have been made. There's nothing that's ever been made that's outside the sovereign power and control of God. And thank God that's the reality. And I realize that God is very big and His power is very great. But even this great God with such an awesome power, thank God that He takes notice 
of our little lives and exerts that mighty power in our behalf, even on a daily basis in the, uh, what seems to be great affairs of our life, but it happened to be very small things to him. That's why Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We find there in Daniel chapter 4, I've already quoted a portion of this verse, but it bears quoting again. If you'll recall in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has a vision. He has a dream, and in this dream... Uh, there's a tree that is cut down and a stump that is left. Uh, and as you go on and read through this chapter, you're going to find where uh, Daniel lets him know that God is going to drive him out and his kingdom will still be his. He will be restored to it, but he's going to spend seven years in the field like a beast. That his hair will grow out like uh, the feathers of an eagle. That his uh, fingernails like the talons of an eagle. Uh, that his uh, uh, food will be literally the grass of the field. Now for a man, Nebuchadnezzar, who the Bible says that when he walked, the earth trembled. Now for a man like that to hear this, uh, number one, he didn't believe it. But it was about a year later that that's exactly what happened. God brought that man low. See, this man, about a year later, after God had told him this in the vision, he walks through his palaces and his courts, and he begins to observe this great kingdom. And certainly it was a great kingdom, one of the greatest that has ever existed upon the face of the earth. But it's not greater than the kingdom of God, but in his mind it was the greatest that ever had been or ever would be. And so as he goes around in his arrogance and his pride, he said, look at this great Babylon which I have built for my glory and for my honor. And as soon as those words came out of his mouth, God struck him down and that man became like a beast of the field. And there he was for seven years left that way. How would you have liked to have been on the court of the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, for that seven years? Watching him every day out there in the field uh, like a beast eating grass. Watching his hair grow out and his fingernails untrimmed. Uh, wondering, well, should we uh, take control of his court? Uh, should we take over his throne? Uh, surely he's going to be that way forever. He's lost his mind. He's mad. He's crazy. He's insane. Uh, let us take control. But for whatever reason, uh, according to the uh, biblical record, we find no evidence uh, that any tried to take over his throne. God preserved his throne for that seven years. God told him he would be restored to it. And so that's exactly what's going to happen. Anyway, it says in verse 28, All this came upon the king Nebuchadnezzar, and at the end of twelve months he walked in the palace of the kingdom of Babylon. The king spake and said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, once again, there fell a voice from heaven, saying, O king Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee until thou knowest that the Most High, capital H, ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The Bible tells us in the book of Psalms uh, that promotion, talking about authority given to men, it doesn't come from the north, the south, the east, or the west, but it comes from heaven itself. Uh, it is God, according to Romans chapter 13, that has ordained government uh, among the nations of men. And that's why you and I as Christians are to be subject to the uh, higher powers, that we're to be subject to the laws that govern us, so long as they do not violate the law and the morals of God. Anyway, here God tells this man, 
He says, uh, uh, the Most High, uh, the Most High, excuse me, He rules in the kingdom of men and He gives it to whomsoever He will. So here Nebuchadnezzar thought he could never be deposed, never be dethroned. His kingdom was too great, his glory too much for anyone to be able to overwhelm him, to overtake him. But what he failed to remember is that there's a God in heaven that has all power, that rules in the affairs of men. And when he sees someone like this man, he put him in his place. So here God speaks to him and lets him know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and God gives it to whomsoever he will. Now, sometimes I don't know exactly understand why God gives it to whom he does, but uh, it's his business, not mine. Anyway, it says the same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men and did eat grass as an oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hairs uh, were grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Verse 34, and at the end of the days, he says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, Lifted up mine eyes unto heaven, and mine understanding returned unto me. I try to envision this. Here's a man for seven years. I don't know what he would have looked like. Uh, just matted and dirty. Uh, eating nothing but grass in the field. After seven years, says he lifted up his eyes, and his understanding returned to him. I love Psalm 121. It says uh, that you and I were to look at, lift up our eyes to the hills from whence cometh our help. Our help cometh from the Lord. And that's about what Nebuchadnezzar does. He lifts up his eyes, and when he does, his understanding returned to him. And notice what, it did, what he does. He says, I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him that liveth forever, whose dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. You know what he's understood finally? <laughs> that I am just a mere man. That God has allowed me to occupy this place. There's coming a day that I'll breathe my last. It's going to go to somebody else. Uh, somebody else will take this throne. Maybe some other kingdom will overwhelm this nation which I rule. But there's a God in heaven who has an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. He'll never be deposed from his throne. Uh, there will never be a king greater than him. There will never be one that will overwhelm them with their ability and their power. And all of a sudden, uh, he'll be taken from his throne and another sit thereupon. That's never going to occur. Uh, we never have to be concerned that the God who rules on our behalf in the glories of heaven uh, shall ever be overthrown or overruled by any. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar finally saw. He says, I've been overruled and I have been overthrown. But the God who is in the heavens, the Most High, His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is from generation to generation. And then he says in verse 35, he got the point. He said, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. What does that mean? Their reputation is nothing. I don't care what position you get to. Now I realize that you could become the President of the United States and maybe uh, establish a great legacy that might be remembered for uh, decades or maybe hundreds of years. Think about uh, President Washington uh, who served this nation as its first president in the late 1700s up to the year 1800. He's now remembered uh, for over 200 years. Uh, he's in the history books uh, for his great leadership his wise governance of this land. And we can go down through various presidents through history that are remembered well. And then we can also find some that were reputable. Uh, they, were, they have a reputation, excuse me, but it's not a good reputation. They're well remembered. And then you have a bunch through there you don't hardly know anything about. 
What could you tell me right now about President James K. Polk? I can't think of anything myself right now. I don't even remember what number he was in order. I used to know. I can't remember anymore. Uh, what about Chester Arthur? Anything you can tell me about him? Uh, Grover Cleveland, keep going down the list. There's a lot of them uh, that have served in this nation, 46 so far, uh, that have served. Uh, and yet uh, some of them, you can't think of anything that they did, good or bad, for this nation. Uh, so even uh, getting yourself to the level of President of the United States does not guarantee that you're going to be remembered uh, with any distinction other than maybe your name. Uh, outside of that, that's it. But there's a lot of people in this world that will never be remembered at all. There's people already in this graveyard that there's not a single person in this building that knew. You can go out there and look at their name, but you don't know anything about them. Don't know anything about their life. Anything about what they did while they lived in this life. And there's coming a day that all of us, if Jesus doesn't come back, most of us, I guess, will be out here or wherever place you decide to be buried. And there'll be a day that there'll not be a person upon this earth that will remember you, that will have no knowledge of you outside of what others might tell them or your name on a marker. And give it enough time and the name on your marker will vanish away as well. I've been in a lot of cemeteries, even in this nation, where you couldn't even read anymore the name that had been engraved on that stone. So here is what Nebuchadnezzar says. He says, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he doeth, that means God, he doeth according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say unto him, what doest thou? None can stop him and none can justifiably ask him, what are you doing? Now there's a lot of people that criticize God and want to know why God is doing certain things, but we don't have the right. To ask God that question, God does what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, how he wants to do it. And that's just the way that it is. And we can either like it or, as my grandmother would say, lump it. Either way, uh, God is going to do what God desires to do. I'd rather like it and enjoy it, rejoice in it, embrace it, and uh, uh, praise his name for the goodness of God that he's shown me throughout my life. I read in Jeremiah chapter 32 that Jeremiah is told, of course, by God that uh, their nation is going to be overwhelmed that it's going to be taken captive, the people thereof, most of them. The city of Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And he's told this while he's in a prison house. And while he's in the prison house, God sends word to him that there was going to be a, a relative come to him to sell him a piece of land. And he tells this uh, prophet, when he comes, you're to purchase the piece of land. Say, so why in the world, in the midst of all this turmoil that's about to happen, would God tell this man... You're to buy a piece of land. You know, when the economy goes down, wise people with finances end up with more. <laughs> uh, people with money and people that have knowledge and understanding, they usually end up far wealthier on the other side of a recession or a depression. Uh, it's the rest of us folks who don't really know much about how things operate uh, that end up on the short end of the stick. Uh, even back in the days of John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil, uh, when Congress finally uh, ruled that his uh, company was to be broken up. Uh, he was very upset about all that, but as it turned out, all Congress did was make him a far wealthier man with his companies broken up the way uh, that they were. Uh, but anyway, in Jeremiah chapter 32, God tells Jeremiah, you're going to have a relative come, there, you're a near kinsman to, there's going to be land to be redeemed, you pay the redemption price, and you're going to own this land. Well, so that's exactly what happens. Just as God declares, this uh, uh, relative comes to the court of the prison, and they uh, 
make the transaction. It's recorded. The public things were recorded. The private things recorded before witnesses. Put in an earthen vessel to be buried in the earth. And in all of that, Jeremiah says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Or actually, he says, nothing is too hard for the Lord. Excuse me. You know what he's looking at? He's looking at God's promise that the children of Israel were coming back to the land. God said you're going to be gone, but you're going to be gone for 70 years. And the same God that's going to drive you out of this land is also going to bring you back. From an earthly perspective, it was going to only look like that the Babylonians, who were stronger than they, had just simply come in and taken over their nation. No, the Babylonians were only doing what God uh, purposed them to do. God purposed the Babylonians to come and overwhelm that nation because of the disobedience and the rebellious nature of the children of Israel. And God would use the Babylonians to punish this nation for 70 years. But God was also telling the children of Israel that after 70 years, I'm going to show you mercy and kindness and you're coming back to this land. And Jeremiah, here's a token of that promise. You purchased this land. When you come back here, this will be yours and your descendants uh, uh, going forward. So there's that uh, statement. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. That's not the first time uh, uh, that statement is made or a similar statement or question is made. In Genesis chapter 18, after God in Genesis 17 at age 99 uh, tells Abram, he says, I am the Almighty. Uh, Tells him that he's going to have a son. God comes back in Genesis chapter 18 and he lets them know that it's about time. What does Sarah do? She laughs. What does God do in response to her laughter? He asks the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? That was a very practical uh, question to Abraham and Sarah. They have wanted a child. God's promised a child. They've continued going forward in hope of that promise. Probably many times about gave up on the promise. And now it's finally going to come to fulfillment. And when Sarah hears it, because she's 90 and Abraham's 100, she laughs. I'd laugh too. Uh, but anyway, um, they have a child. Exactly God, like God says. Why? Because nothing is too hard for the Lord. God who made the world could open her womb. Uh, God who made the world could restore the reproductive powers of Abraham's body. And he did. And all of a sudden there was a child that came in a miraculous way. Uh, that would be a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, he came by nature, of course, but God overruled nature. God superseded nature, and that child was born. Why? Because nothing is too hard for the Lord. That speaks of God's omnipotence, that God is all-powerful. And the same God who's all-powerful, thank God, is the one who's in charge of our redemption. And the same God who's powerful enough to give Abraham a son when he's a hundred The same God that's powerful enough to restore the children of Israel to their land after 70 years of captivity is certainly, and the same God who could simply speak and out of nothing the world would be, he could just speak and from the breath of his mouth all things that we see and even the unseen creation is made. Do you think that our redemption is a matter that's too hard for the Lord? Do you think that our redemption is something that God would leave uh, to us who certainly could not do it uh, of ourselves? The matter of our redemption is not too hard for the Lord. Now the Bible lets us know that when God made the world and he set the stars in the sky, that that was the finger work and the handiwork of God. 
Now it also lets us know in the matter of our redemption that God sent his own right arm. Our redemption is the arm work of God. Uh, it certainly took more of God according to the word of God to redeem us than it did to make the world. Why? Because God had to be made of a woman made under the law to redeem us who were under the law. But God sent forth of his, his son and his son came to this world and the same son who was sitting in glory in heaven had all power while he was here upon this earth. And the one who had all power, and he was, uh, the, the Bible tells us in Colossians, that in him felt the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And we see that on display throughout the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. How many times did he suspend nature? Uh, how many times did he operate contrary to nature? How many times did he raise the dead back to life again? We see that happen uh, multiple times throughout the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, back in that day and time, there was no uh, uh, eye surgeon that could give sight back to the blind. Uh, but the Lord Jesus Christ could simply speak and they who were blind would have sight. Another occasion, he would take clay and his spit and make a salve, if you would, and put it upon the eyes of a blind man and that man was able to see. Who else could speak to a leper and say, I will be thou clean. And all of a sudden, the leprosy is purged from that man's body. Who could speak to a withered hand and all of a sudden, that hand is made whole. Who could speak in a man's ankle bones all of a sudden are restored and that man could get up and walk and leap and praise God. Uh, who else besides the Lord Jesus Christ uh, could speak and a fever uh, go out of a body of uh, the mother-in-law of the Apostle Peter. There's nobody else that's ever been able to speak and all of a sudden those things happen. Now there are some of those things that uh, medical science has been able uh, to resolve in some cases and thank God for it. But Jesus didn't need medical science to do it. He just spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. That's the God that you and I serve today. And thank God he's also the one who continues to reign and he's the one who has our salvation firmly in the grasp of his hands. Time is quickly going. Let's speak for a few moments on God's omniscience. God is all-knowing. There's nothing outside of the knowledge of God. The word omniscient, omni, means all, science, knowledge. He has all knowledge. We find that uh, declared to us all throughout the word of God. But let's uh, start primarily in Isaiah chapter 46. In Isaiah chapter 46, beginning in verse 9, we find that Isaiah records this, speaking as God. He says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. Then notice verse 10, he says, Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Notice that again. He says, God declares the end from the beginning. That means that God can preach to us about the end from the very beginning. How can he do that? Because he's all-knowing. He knows the end from the beginning, and he's able to declare it. That means he sets the end from the beginning. Uh, when God created time, when he created this world, he already knew what the end looked like. He already knew that the end would be the sending the second time of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, back out of this earth uh, to take us home to be with him in glory, but also to dispatch the wicked and all the devils out of their place in the lake of fire. God could see that uh, from before the dawn of creation. And at creation, he declared the end from the beginning, and he says, and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done. Now, I can, through the Word of God, tell you about the things that are not yet done. But if it weren't for God recording it in His Word, I couldn't tell you the first thing about what's going to happen in the future. 
Now, I can't tell you what's going to happen an hour from now, but I can just tell you that at some time in the future, the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back. I believe that with great assurance. That is my hope, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the thing that keeps me going. It's what drives me forth. It's what keeps me motivated in the service of God is the knowledge that there's coming a day that I will see with my own eyes the Lord Jesus Christ ascend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. That day's approaching. God, though, could see that thousands of years ago uh, when the dawn of time when he spoke and Adam all of a sudden existed, when he made him from the dust of the earth and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul, God knew his son would come the second time. When Adam fell, God knew that his son would come the first time. God already was aware of that. God was not caught by surprise when Adam fell in the garden. If God was not omniscient, if God did not know all things before they occurred, he could have been caught off guard by Adam's transgression and all of a sudden have to come up with a plan uh, for our redemption. But that's not how God operates. That's not the God that we serve. God already knew exactly what would occur in the garden before it ever occurred. And made man in spite of that. But also made provision. As, it, uh, as the, uh, the wise woman of Tekoa said to David. Which was a truth about uh, David's relationship with his son. But more importantly a truth about us. That God had devised means that is banished, be not expelled from him. When did God devise those means? From before the foundation of the world, the Bible declares. Why? Because God knows all things. He's omniscient and nothing catches God by surprise. I get surprised a lot, a lot more than I would like. Uh, there's a lot of things that occur that surprise me that I was not expecting. Uh, there's been quite a few things in my life that came about that I was not expecting. And all of a sudden, surprised in a good way sometimes, and surprised in a negative way other times. Uh, and uh, those negative surprises, of course, I'd rather not have. I'm even, not even really a big fan of good surprises. I kind of like to know what's coming in advance. You know, one good thing about going to the movies, which I haven't done in a long time, is uh, before the movie starts, what happens? They put up on the screen, or used to, coming attractions. What were they doing? Giving you previews of what was coming out to the theater, so hopefully you'd come back and buy a ticket for that show and watch that one as well. Uh, I'd like to have some previews of what's going to happen. Well, I don't have previews of what's happening every moment of my life, but I have previews of what I need to know, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ has got me safely in his hand, and he does you as well, and that if I pass from this life before he comes back, I'm going to be with him in glory. I know that. I have that preview from the Word of God, and I have the preview from the Word of God that Jesus is coming, and he'll take care of these bodies, our soul, and our spirit, where they'll all be joined together and glorified in one to be with him forever. I know that much. That's all I need to know. But I also know this. God knows all things. Nothing that happens in this world ever surprises God. There's nothing that ever occurs that God... I love this. I read this one thing. I read this one time. Does it, did it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurs to God? I kind of like that saying. Uh, you know, thankfully it has occurred to me now that nothing occurs with God. You know, in other words, God is already aware. Uh, God doesn't have to uh, react because he wasn't prepared and didn't know what was coming. In Psalm 147, David writes this in verse 5. He says, great is our Lord and of great power, his understanding is infinite. The word infinite, infinite excuse me, means unlimited. I have a finite understanding. My understanding is limited. Now, 
there's a lot of things that I could still learn, and I'm still trying to learn a lot of different things. There's things in my everyday work life that I'm still trying to learn. I don't know everything about the industry that I work in, and so I'm still uh, daily trying to learn that. I'm still trying to learn how to be a husband. In July of this year, will be 15 years since we've been, uh, uh, we went uh, to the altar, but I'm still trying to learn how to be a husband. I'm still trying to learn how to be a father. Uh, I realize that we have four children. I've had four opportunities, but see, I've got one that's about to be 10. I've never been the father of a 10-year-old before, so I'm going to have to learn how to do that. Uh, when Adley came along, I didn't know what it was to be the father of a boy. I had to learn how to try to do that. Uh, there's a lot of things about uh, parenting children that I still don't know that I'm still having to learn. Uh, there's a lot about being a pastor that I haven't got down yet, that I haven't learned, that I'm still ignorant about. And there's a whole lot about the Word of God that I don't know. I thank God for what I do know. And there's enough about it that I do know that still keeps me desirous to know more about it. And I do enjoy trying to learn more about the Word of God. But again, my understanding is fine. There comes a point <laughs> that I'm not going to learn anymore. There comes, now, when I say that, there's going to come a point that my mind won't be able to retain it. There may come a point my mind won't be able to comprehend it. But with God, God is not that way. God's understanding is infinite. That means there is nothing, nothing whatsoever that God cannot comprehend. God understands. God's knowledge, again, is infinite. Notice again what he says. Great is our Lord and of great power his understanding is infinite. I don't understand what it is to lose a spouse. I don't understand what it is to lose a child. God does. God has understanding of what it is to lose a child. He lost his son. He understands what it is to lose a spouse. Say, how in the world does he understand that? Because his bride for a while was dead to him uh, when we were dead in trespasses and sins. Uh, So there's things that I do not understand that you go through, but the Bible says God understanding is infinite. That means that there's nothing that you go through that God does not already understand. And there's times that I can come up to you when you're going through something and I can tell you that I understand that because I have been through it and hopefully that will help you. But what I can tell you, even if I don't understand it, is there's one in heaven who is able to understand, but beyond that, he can do more than understand. He can comfort you in all your tribulation. I might understand, and that might help you, or it might not. But God understanding you goes beyond just understanding and having a a comprehension of what you're going through. He's also able to comfort you in all your tribulation. So again, here David says in Psalm 147, Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. In Matthew chapter 10, the Lord tells the disciples who might be concerned about their lives and how they were going to get by, how they were going to go forward in a world that would hate them, despise them, and want to destroy them. The Lord let them know that they weren't to be concerned. They weren't to fear man that could destroy their body, but rather they were to fear God who was able to destroy their body and soul with the fires of hell. And then the Lord tells them in Matthew chapter 10, verse 30, that God could tell, that means count, the number of hairs on their head. You say, well, why is that important? But that, Every day when I brush my hair, a little more comes out. <laughs> it, it, it means something to me. It may not to you. <laughs> I don't want to be bald. But as Sonny Piles used to say, Uh, He didn't care about his hair turning gray. He was more concerned about it turning loose. I'm the same way. It can turn as white as white can be. I'll be fine with that. I just don't want it turning loose. But 
you know, my hair falling out really is a very, very small matter. It means so little. If I was slick bald, it wouldn't really make a big difference. In some ways, it might be easier. But anyway, what's the point? The Lord is letting the disciples know that something as so insignificant as the hair of our hair that has no feeling whatsoever, that really is nothing more but dead parts of our body, he, he knows all of that. And if he knows, if God cares enough to take knowledge of the number of hairs on our head, then certainly he is going to take care, meaning he's going to uh, have empathy and be concerned about the greater issues of our life. And so that's what the Lord tells them in Matthew chapter 10, when they're out there afraid that men might try to kill them for preaching the gospel, he says, you don't be afraid of men, you fear God rather, who is able not only to take your life, but also destroy your soul in the fires of hell. He says, and here's what you can take with you as well. He sees every sparrow when it falls. He knows the number of your hair. He is going to take care of your life. Uh, that's good to know that God is never surprised, and he is going to provide the needs that I stand in need of. 1 John chapter 3. In 1 John chapter 3, the Apostle John writes this in verse 18. He says, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby, hereby what? Hereby loving in deed and in truth, by our action and reality. Hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. If you want assurance that you're one of his, one of the things you can do is love in deed and in truth. That's what he's just told us. But then notice what he says. He says, hereby, by doing that, we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Do you want assurance of salvation? I certainly do. Now, I'm thankful God's very sure about it. Uh, God has no doubts about my salvation whatsoever. But there's a lot of time in my earthly experience that I have doubted my salvation. There's been a lot of times that I needed assurance I need assurance that God cared, that God would take care of me in the everyday practical things of life. But more importantly, I needed assurance that I was one of his and that I would be with him no matter what comes in this world. Well, notice he says, hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. Some of uh, the assurance of our salvation is our own responsibility by loving in deed and in truth. But then notice verse 20. He says, for if our heart condemn us, so our heart can assure us, or our heart can condemn us. And I've been assured in my heart, and I've been condemned by my heart. But you know, the Bible tells us also to be careful about the matters of the heart, because our heart's desperately wicked. It's a very vile thing, and our emotions are very fickle. They can change according to the winds of experience and circumstance. But notice what it says in verse 19. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. God knows we're his whether I have the assurance that I'm his or not. I want to feel that I belong to him. I want to know that. I want to have the feeling of that every day that I live. But there's times that my heart is going to condemn me. And when it does, it's good to know that my heart is not greater than God. But God is greater than my heart. And God knoweth all things. What does that mean? God knows that I belong to him. And God knows that you belong to him. And even if your heart tells you different. If Satan has been successful today in condemning you of your sin. And convincing you today that you don't belong to God. That you have no hope of heaven. Remember that God is greater than Satan. But he's also greater than your heart. And he knoweth all things. 
So the omniscience of God also has a practical application to encourage us and to comfort us and strengthen us while we live here in this world. Lastly, the omnipresence of God. That he's everywhere present. Let's turn back to the Psalms. It's amazing how much doctrinal truth is recorded for us in the poems of David. Psalm 137, David, excuse me, Psalm 139. David says this, Whither or where shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither or where should I flee from thy presence? Now, I don't know why David would want to. He just said right before this, such knowledge was too wonderful for him. It was high. He could not attain to it. Now, there have been moments that I wish God did not know all things. Hebrews 4 lets me know that God is a, a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. That the living word, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's quick. That means he's alive. He's sharp. Uh, more power, he's powerful and he's sharper than a two-edged sword. And the Bible lets us know that he can dis, uh, discern and divide between soul and spirit, the, bearer, the, bone, and the, <laughs> I'll get right now, the bone and the marrow, and he's also a discerner, once again, of the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. Now, that's encouraging on one hand, but fearful on another. To think that God knows what I'm thinking. Uh, Lydia tells me, I know it's true, that it's hard for me to hide what I'm thinking. Uh, usually, what I'm thinking comes out in my expression. I ought to get better about it, but my expressions are generally fairly honest about what it is that I'm thinking, good or bad. There's times that people are doing things that I think is completely absurd and stupid and foolish, and I just let it show forth. I don't have to say a word because my face says it all. There's things that I find irritating, and I don't, I don't hide it well. I realize it. But um, God, even if I were to hide my thoughts, and I do hide a lot of my thoughts, they're never hidden from him. The encouraging part of that is there's times my thoughts are this, that I'm lowly and I'm concerned and I'm fearful. God knows that. I love him and I desire him. And I look forward to his return. God knows that. It's fearful because I also think some very wicked and sinful things. And God knows that as well. And I wish I could hide a part of what I think from the Lord, but I can't. I can't have my cake and eat it too in that regard. If I want him to know in the moments that I praise him from the depths of my soul, I also have to realize that when I curse him in my heart that he knows that as well. So here in Psalm 139, he says, Whither shall I go from thy spirit, or whither shall I flee from thy presence? He says, If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. This one's always astounding me. If I were to make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. Wait a minute, God in hell? It is a created place. And remember, there is no place that's ever been created by God that God is not sovereign over. God is also sovereign even over the depths of hell itself. That has not escaped his power. And David says, if I were to make my bed in hell, he says, thou art there. He says, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. So here David declares, there's no place that I could go upon the face of this earth, nowhere to the depths of hell, nowhere to the heights of heaven, to the depths of the sea that could escape the presence of God. Why? Because wherever we could go, God is already present there. There's nowhere that can escape the knowledge of the Lord. 
And I'm thankful for that as well to realize that wherever I go in this world, that God is always present with me, that there's no place that I can go to escape the reality of that, he is, that he's with me. I'm thankful that he says, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. In Jeremiah chapter 23, God asked the question, verse 23, Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him? Say to the Lord, do not I fill heaven and earth. <laughs> he says, I fill it both, heaven and earth. I fill both. He makes clear that heaven is, is his throne. <laughs> think about it. I think of the majesty and the expanse of heaven. And God says, that's just where I sit. He says, and the earth is my footstool. Notice what he says here. He says, again, do I not fill heaven and earth? There's no expanse, whether it be the expanse of this earth, the expanse of space, or heaven where God dwells, that God does not fill. God fills it all. So again, he says, I, am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God? In other words, don't be concerned and think that I am so distant from you that I cannot see what's going on and that I'm not right there near you to observe and to help when the situation uh, demands it. And that's what God is saying here to Jeremiah to encourage him and to strengthen him. That in the days of judgment that they would face when the Babylonians would come, which would be a horrific time. Just imagine if some foreign enemy were to invade this nation, uh, conquer us, and carry us away. How would that feel? I can't even begin to comprehend what that would be like for some foreign power that's very wicked and uh, very cunning were to overwhelm us and overtake us and conquer us and then take us captive back to their land. I can't begin to fathom what that would be. It would be horrific. And so God in the midst of that coming tells Jeremiah, am I a God of hand? And, uh, am I not a God of hand, a God of far off? He says, whether uh, you're in Babylon or whether you're in Jerusalem, <laughs> I'll be with you. And whether you're sitting here in the house of God on Sunday morning or you find yourselves in the gutters of this earth, uh, God is there uh, with you. Now, I would encourage you to stay out of the gutters of this world and instead spend your time in the kingdom of God with the people of God and with your family trying to do those things that are wholesome and good uh, so that you don't need God when you find yourself in the gutter. But even there, if you were there, God is not limited to help you only when you're sitting here in his house because God is a God at hand, but he's also a God that if it feels like we're far off, we're not. He's still right there by us no matter how far it is that we've walked away from him. Now, it may be true that in your experience you won't feel his presence. I thank God he's omnipresent. I don't always feel it, though. I want to feel his presence, not only here with you on Sunday mornings when we come together for worship, I want to feel him when I'm driving down the highway in that dangerous uh, world that uh, gets more and more dangerous every day. I want to feel him in our home. I want to feel his presence uh, throughout the days of my experience here on earth. I thank God to know that he has all power because there's times that I have no power at all, that I'm powerless in a situation and I need a God who's all powerful. I thank God that he has all knowledge because I certainly do not. And there's a lot that I don't understand, but his understanding is infinite. And I'm thankful to know that wherever I find myself, he will be there with me, whether it be in the heights of heaven or the depths of hell. Behold, he is there. And that is a great strength and a great comfort. Again, these truths 
are not just for the theologians to discuss, to try to strengthen their intelligence about the nature of God. I believe these things that we talk about the last few weeks and continue to talk about are very practical to help the heart and the soul of the child of God as we journey in this world to see the greatness of God, to see how wonderful that he is, how powerful that he is, the knowledge that he has, and that he's present with us no matter where we go gives me strength to press on and to worship him, to praise him, but also to look to him for my help and my deliverance. May God bless you today as our prayer.